Welcome to the Hannah Miller Show. And here she is, Hannah Miller. Outspokenly conservative and unashamedly Christian, this is Hannah Miller, informed and unafraid. And, oh, informed and I haven't said that in a long time. I used to add that on to the end. When I did my radio show, I uh, I would add that in, on to the end of my little tag. And, uh, wow, I don't even know if I said it all right just then. It just started coming out and my mind had gone somewhere else and I was just, it was just going. So anyway, just this real and authentic podcast recording for you. I don't know entirely what I just said in the intro just then. (laughs) It might have been my old, my old one. But anyway, welcome into the Hannah Miller Show. And this is what happened this week. First of all, just as a reminder, Republican does not always equal conservative. There are 18 senators and 13 congressmen who voted for betrayal and phony infrastructure. Follow how your senators and congressmen vote after they reach office so that when they come back around asking for your money and your vote, you cannot be deceived. All right. I'm not going to dive into all of that. Such a travesty. It was such a win for Joe Biden. And I cannot believe that there, I mean, I can't believe, what am I saying? It's not that I cannot believe. I can believe that there are Republicans, and it doesn't surprise me that any of these senators or congressmen went the way that they did, but that they would say, well, we have to be bi- bipartisan. Look, you, we have a republic, and as conservatives and Republicans, we want to conserve the republic. You cannot be bipartisan with people who want to usher in a socialist regime. All right? And that's what they are. Let's just be honest. That's what progressives are. That's what the left is now. That's what these Democrats, they have they are on full throttle, full steam ahead, pedal to the metal, trying to usher in a communist socialistic regime in the United States of America. That is what they're doing. And we, as conservatives, as Americanists, we don't play ball with that. Period. Full stop. So don't tell me, well, we have to be bipartisan. You know, we need some bipartisanship here with that. No. Not when what they want will utterly destroy the republic that our founding fathers gave us. There's been a lot of chipping away at it over the last 200 years. But what they want will be the final death toll for it. All right. So one of the things I've talked about recently is how with all of this stuff that is going on right now with in the medical field, with colleges, with schools, that we as conservatives or those of us who don't like what we're seeing with medical tyranny, uh, with people basically being told they can't work there or they can't be there because of either their politics if you're at a university or college or because uh, you're not getting the jab if you're in the medical field. One of the things that I've said is, look, we're going to have to think outside the box. We're going to have to um, have our own universities. We're going to have to have our own hospitals. We're going to have to have, you know, our own K through 12 schools or really you should homeschool. But if you can't, you know, if you're not going to do that, then we need to have our own. And yes, part of me struggles with that because it further divides. But the reality is, is we can't keep sending our children in to these indoctrination camps as they are right now. We can't. 
And we also, if they're going to tell us they're not going to offer service to us in a hospital because you don't have the COVID-19 vaccines and all of the 1,001 boosters, you have to have somewhere to go. I mean, we're not the ones that said we, you know, we were the ones that were driven away. Let me just put it that way. So one of the things that's happening, and this is a this is a good story, is that a group of former university administrators, professors, authors, and entrepreneurs, uh, this group is seeking to challenge the American higher education system, founding a university dedicated to freedom of thought and academic diversity. So in an op-ed for the New York Post Monday, venture capitalist and co-founder of Palantir Technologies, Joe Lonsdale, introduced the University of Austin. This is a new university that's attempting to reclaim the academic rigor and prestige of the American university. Uh, Lonsdale opened his column by explaining that American universities had significantly deteriorated from the achievements they made in the 20th century. He said this, Our universities drove scientific progress, pursued truth, and cultivated an intellectually courageous and competent elite. They helped make the United States the most innovative, prosperous, and powerful nation in history. And he went on to say, But today, our universities are failing to live up to that legacy. And he actually, he blamed, in his, in his op-ed, he blamed two factors for this. He said, first, that institutional structures have hampered university achievement by turning specialization into hyper-specialization, allowing scholars to close off their work to scrutiny and the abandonment of enlightenment values in favor of uniformity of viewpoint. All right, so this first one, being the institutional structures, you know, focusing on hyper hyper specialization and uniformity of viewpoint. And then the second point that he made, the second factor he had, he attributes new ideologies of intolerance that order subservience and squash those who think differently to the decline. So first, like I said, the institutional structures that favor uniformity of viewpoint just to kind of shorten that. And then the second is the new ideologies of intolerance and squashing those who think differently. And it's really the same. Well, this is what he said. He said the combined effect of these structural and cultural problems is that the elite universities aren't attracting the best talent as often, nor producing the type of leaders we need. And it's really the same issue Just one of them is within the structural, the institutional structure of the universities. And then the other is amongst the students, amongst the culture. And both of them is the intolerance for ideas that are outside of, in my opinion, the progressive box. So they want that uniformity of viewpoint. And what do they mean by that? Progressive. They want them. They want everybody's ideologies, whether they and their belief systems, whether they're on staff, whether they're research, uh, doing research for the university, whether staff, faculty, professors, whatever they're doing, or if they're students. Both of those communities have to align themselves with progressive ideology. But according to Lonsdale, and this is I wholeheartedly believe, in the face of those challenges, there's an opportunity to build. 
And he said this, it is possible today for the first time in generations to build a new university to compete with top schools, one that attracts the most talented young people in the world and empowers them to pursue truth and innovation. We can today found a university that will prepare a new generation of leaders to think for themselves about all sides of an issue, speak truth to power, and take power back from ideologues. The University of Austin is, at its heart, a project based on optimism. By getting the values, incentives, and interdisciplinary structure right from the beginning, we can restore the classically liberal university and the enlightenment values that made our civilization what it is. We can show off something so compelling that it inspires a revival of the values of free inquiry and pluralism, not just in one new university, but in hundreds of universities. And when we do... We can reclaim the civilizational achievements that came from the open competition of ideas or that come from the open competition of ideas. Excuse me. So the board of advisors for this university contain a number of prolific authors and academics among them. And I'm going to butcher some of these names. So sorry. Uh, Pano Canellos, the former president of St. John's College. Uh, Nal Ferguson, the historian at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. Harvard psychologist Steven Pinker, New York law school professor and former ACLU president Nadine Strosen. NYU social psychologist Jonathan Haidt, Harvard University president emeritus Larry Summers, playwright and Pulitzer Prize-winning author David Mamet, former New York Times columnist Barry Wise and Andrew Sullivan, New York Post op-ed editor Sohrab Hamari, and The Atlantic writer Caitlin Flanagan. And of course, its inaugural faculty fellows include former Portland State philosophy professor Peter Bokosin and Hoover Institute research fellow Ayan Hersey Ali. And a uh, they're reportedly in the process of securing land in the vicinity of Texas's capital city. They're planning to open a summer program in 2022 with further programs opening in 2022, 2023, and 2024. And this is the second university in the last two years. Ralston College in Savannah, Georgia was the first. And I checked out their website today. They have a master's in humanities program. They have some short courses. Uh, they have lots of, they, they have podcasts and things like that, uh, blogs on their page, on their website. And they're in connection and the name just for, left me, but there's a basically like a website university that they're in connection to that their classes are um, available on that platform as well. And very, you know, not a very large program, but very cutting edge. So, you know, obviously needing more staff, need growth, interest, and that kind of thing. So this is something that's going to have to happen probably across the board with services that have just been overtaken by socialists, by progressive, the progressive left, and their socialist ideologies. And I haven't talked, I don't think, on this podcast length at length about how our medical system and how it really is a socialist socialistic program and how all the issues therein you know a lot of people look at the healthcare system in the United States and they think oh this is what free market 
capitalism. This is what the free market does. This is why the free market is bad. Our health system, our healthcare system is just so bad. But what they don't realize is that the reasons that our healthcare system is so bad now is because it's already very, very, very socialist. And I, I need to do, I need to dive into that some for, for you guys and, and flesh that out and talk about it. Um, but, and, and we'll do, we'll do that one day. That will be a good conversation to have, but just that's the truth of the matter. And of course, a lot of it has to do with insurance companies. And, you know, my, I, I love to listen to Daniel Horowitz and he calls it the in, you know, insurance cartel. He's exactly right. Um, but a lot of it's wrapped up in that. So I really like this idea. I think this is uh, a, something to keep our eye on as conservatives and just as something that could possibly be kind of the taking the lead on the direction that a lot of us are going to have to go in as conservatives who want to either on the one hand get away from socialist ideologies uh, and get away from those in the education system, whether it be undergrad or graduate or K through 12, whatever it may be, or we have to get out because we're not willing to take the vaccine and we're looking for employment or we're looking for education for our children or we're looking for some kind of services with, you know, with the hospital system, et cetera. Hi, this is Bob of Bob Sloan Audio Productions. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Have you ever thought about doing a podcast yourself? Do you have a desire to communicate an idea, opinion, or even a hobby or interest you'd like to share with the world? And do you have the communication skill and dedication? If so, let's talk. Send an email and a short description of your idea to bob at bobsloan.com. That's bob at b-o-b-s-l-o-n-e dot com. Now let's get back to the podcast. All right, back from the break. I want to dive into the Kyle Rittenhouse case, that trial that has been going on. If you follow the prosecution's case against Kyle Rittenhouse, the only logical end is the assertion that self-defense is almost never an option and visiting the scene of a riot is only okay if you're there to burn property. And we're going to flesh that out a little bit more and some other concerns that I have with the prosecution's case. So Rittenhouse and some history here. He faces charges uh, for the murders of Joseph Rosenbaum and Anthony Huber, as well as the intentional homicide of Gage Grosskreutz and reckless endangerment for firing an AR-15. It's not disputed, and it's on video, that Rittenhouse shot all three, and only Grosskreutz survived. And I'm probably pronouncing his name wrong. Sorry about that. Rittenhouse has asserted that he acted in self-defense. There are generally three elements to a claim of self-defense. One, that the person claiming self-defense was not the aggressor. Two, that the person reasonably believed that the threat posed to him or her was imminent or in progress. And three, that the person reasonably believed that his response was proportional to the harm threatened. So, is also on video and backed up by eyewitness testimony that each of the three men were running after Rittenhouse and making attempts to take his gun. Grosskreutz, who was armed at the time, himself said he tried grabbing Rittenhouse's AR-15. And what we have seen over the past seven days of the Rittenhouse trial is truly stunning. Leave aside... For the moment, the questionable legal ethics and bad faith the prosecution demonstrated with which the judge, God bless him, has soundly rebuked, the prosecution, in its case in chief, did not present a single shred of evidence to rebut 
Rittenhouse's claim of self-defense. On the contrary, every witness the prosecution called over five days of testimony ended up giving testimony that supported Rittenhouse's claims of self-defense. And every video presented has also backed up his claim of self-defense. Even Grossgroots admitted that Rittenhouse did not try to shoot him while he had his hands in the air. Rittenhouse only shot him once he brought his own handgun out and was lifting it towards Rittenhouse. This is a quote. When you were standing three to five feet from him with your hands, your arms up in the air, he never fired, defense attorney Corey Chirafisi said during his cross-examination. It wasn't until you pointed your gun at him, advanced on him with your gun, now your hands down, pointed at him that he fired, right? Correct, Grossgroots responded. He later added that he didn't mean to point his gun at Rittenhouse, but as we discussed recently regarding Alec Baldwin, the person holding the weapon is responsible. That's just how it is. The prosecutor's emphasis, and, and I'm not, I'm not going to get into, look, the, the mainstream media has been flagrantly lying about this from the very beginning, from a year ago to now. If you look at any of the headlines that they are creating, manufacturing, they tell the exact opposite. I mean, the bald-faced lies takes your breath away. But I'm not going to get into all that because it comes as no surprise. Are any of us surprised that the legacy media is lying? No. So I won't spend any time going through all of those and all of the lies. Just we got to stop paying any attention to what the mainstream media says. Their, their reporting is junk. Their opinions are trash. Just turn it all off. So the prosecutor's emphasis has been that one, Rosenbaum, the shooting of whom set off the whole episode, never physically touched Rittenhouse. And two, that Rittenhouse's presence by its very nature was needlessly provocative. This absurdity was captured in one specific exchange between Binger, the prosecutor, um, the and Rittenhouse. Binger said, so you saw someone who was trying to put out a fire who got assaulted? Rittenhouse said yes. Binger questioned again, but if you're going to help people, why would you expect anyone would try and hurt you? And Rittenhouse responded, I don't know. Somebody did try to hurt me, and I was helping people. Binger is apparently never prepared for an unexpected disaster. No doubt he doesn't have homeowner's insurance, doesn't buckle his seatbelt, and thinks a living will is preposterous. All this from a guy who probably still sleeps in his mask and got the COVID jab. Yeah, somehow I doubt he doesn't understand the concept of better safe than sorry. Not that a mask or the job protects you from COVID, but I digress. So, back to the case. Rittenhouse testified that he was in Kenosha that night at the request of a car lot owner who'd been looking for men to protect his business, which had previously suffered damage from nights of rioting. He said he brought a medic kit for the purpose offering care to anyone injured. For the purpose of offering care, I'm sorry, to anyone injured. And his AR-15 in the event that he needed it for his own protection. There had been, after all, reports of physical assaults against police and a business owner in addition to the property damage. This was all confirmed by pictures and videos from the day. On four separate occasions, 
Evidence from that day shows Rittenhouse scrubbing graffiti off of buildings, rendering aid to the injured, and requesting a fire extinguisher to help put out fires. Okay? This was a guy, he's literally one of the helpers that Mr. Rogers told us to look for in the midst of a disaster. After, ev- after everything, anything like this happens, everybody always likes to trot out that quote by Mr. Rogers. And it's true. Always look for the helpers. Kyle Rittenhouse was literally there to help. And we have tons of video evidence to support that. Instead of thanking him, our culture is mourning the guy who performed oral sex on five boys between the ages of 9-11. Give us Barabbas is ringing in my ears. The similarities are truly nauseating. There's a quote that says, The crowd did not want Barabbas because they loved him, but because they hated the truth. And the crowd in Jerusalem hated Jesus because he is the truth. The progressive mob hates Rittenhouse because he represents the truth of our constitutional rights. Specifically, our Second Amendment. This is why conservatives accuse progressives of hating America, which I don't think progressives are particularly trying to hide anymore. But it's because they hate free speech. They shut down free speech on social media last year that supported Rittenhouse. They hate your right to due process. The judge himself exposed their attempts to dox the jurors this week. And as this entire trial shows, they hate your Second Amendment rights. Three core features that make America great, progressives absolutely despise. And indeed, in his comments Wednesday to the judge, Binger admitted his case is an attempt to nullify our God-given right to keep and bear arms. The following is from Andrew Bronca's recounting at Legal Insurrection what happened at the trial Wednesday. Uh, he said, Binger took this opportunity to assure the judge that as far as the prosecution was concerned, Kyle very much was on trial for poor judgment, as it was of the state's theory of the case that none of these shootings would have occurred but for Kyle's poor judgment of going to Kenosha that night with an AR. Do you get that? The DA's theory of the case is not that Rittenhouse failed to satisfy the legal standards for self-defense in each instance when he fired the AR-15, but that the defense should fail solely because Rittenhouse exercised his right to keep and bear arms for self-defense in the first place. If Rittenhouse is convicted, not only will it reveal that our justice system is truly corrupt and broken, But it will be the death toll of our Second Amendment rights. And once we have no right to defend ourselves, you can say goodbye to all our other rights as well. Richard Henry Lee said this, To preserve liberty, it is essential that the whole body of people always possess arms and be taught alike, especially when young, how to use them. I'll conclude with the following comments from J.D. Vance, who wrote a popular book about Middle America and who probably knows what the average American feels. He says, I took a brief break to watch this Rittenhouse testimony, and it fills me with indescribable rage. I'm not a criminal lawyer. I'm sure people are right that it's risky for him to testify. But our leaders abandoned this kid's community to lawless thug rioters, and he did something about it. And now a lawless thug prosecutor is trying to destroy his life. I just watched a boy recount an act of offensive violence committed against him and break down in tears. Everyone from the journalist who condoned this violence to the president of the United States who called this kid a white supremacist is culpable for this. 
We leave our boys without fathers. We let the wolves set fire to their communities. And when human nature tells them to go and defend what no one else is defending, we bring the full weight of the state and the global monopolists against them. End quote. You see, Kyle Rittenhouse is a human, and his human nature, especially as a man, demanded that he protect the vulnerable. God designed him as a man to be a protector. Rittenhouse is a picture of what a gentle warrior looks like. In my opinion, what a man should look like. Someone who kindly renders aid when needed. And we have lots of video and photo and eyewitness accounts of that happening that day. And also someone who wields a weapon with expertise in the defense of innocent life. And we're also seeing that become true as well. Go home, get a gun, learn how to use it, and teach your children how to use it. That liberty may be preserved and that our children may not be left to the wolves. Thank you for listening to The Hannah Miller Show. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast. This podcast is produced by Bob Sloan Audio Productions. If you'd like to find out more about Hannah or to schedule her for a speaking event, go to her website, thehannahmillershow.com.